next generation of risk managers, really to be able to um, assess things, to be able to speak English rather than acronyms or technical terms. Welcome to another edition of the Ronin Leadership Podcast. It's uh, Monday morning, actually the Monday before Labor Day weekend, so hard to believe that we're coming towards the end of summer. Hope all of you had a, a great weekend. Uh, we're looking at the uh, uh, our uh, YouTube channel. We're growing our subscribers by leaps and bounds. Uh, we're almost at the 1,000 subscriber mark, so please continue to hit the like button and the subscribe button. Uh, tell your friends, even family, even tell your enemies about it, because maybe your enemies need to learn something about leadership. Uh, and also, thank you for the uh, all the comments that you make that makes our uh, uh, podcast better. Uh, thank you for supporting us, uh, me and my book writing. Uh, so if you haven't gotten The Art of Ronin Leadership, The Art of Executing Ronin Leadership Strategies, or Full Circle, my latest foray into fiction, um, please uh, check out MikeHowardAuthor.com website or Amazon.com and find all of those there. Get the shameless plugs out of the way so we can get to the uh, the meat of what we're up to today. I'm so thrilled to have uh, uh, a dear friend, someone I've known for many, many years uh, when I was the chief security officer at Microsoft, uh, Annie Searle. Annie uh, recently retired, I believe, as the uh, as an associate teaching uh, professor at the University of Washington. Uh, those are days I treasure because I remember and it was great enough to invite my team out uh, once or twice a year to talk to her uh, classes on operational resilience. Annie is an expert on, on resilience and uh, crisis management, and we were able to really engage with her students. She also has her own uh, consulting firm, which she's had for many years, Annie Sherrill and Associates, which helps companies and entities become more resilient and more steadfast in, in, in crisis situations. Annie, thank you so much for being on, on our podcast. Mike, I'm delighted to be here. You know that I still follow everything you do very closely. And uh, <laughs> oh, I, hope I, better to, make sure I'm... <laughs> I, I hope to emulate um, a lot of your behavior in my retirement from teaching. I, I like to say to people that I'm retired from teaching, but not from life. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was it was like I, I truly was one of the highlights of of my years uh, when we were at Microsoft when we got the invitation. It was fun hanging out with you and your students and getting questions from them and sharing some of our technology and how we do things at Global Security. So I wanted the audience to know that I, I thank you a lot for giving us the opportunity back then. Well, it was a it was a remarkable thing for graduate students. And I think sometimes undergraduates joined in as well um, to hear the chief of security at Microsoft come in and lay out your entire global program and how it changed over time. You know, the just remarkable sort of progress you pushed the company to where that was concerned and reducing the number of centers that you had around the world as technology evolved. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was a, it was it was it was a nice ride. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so let's let's get back to you. Um, why don't you give uh, our audience a sense of who you are? Walk 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 us through your career. How did you get to where you are right now? Well, it's not a straight path, and no one would expect that I'd be there. In my 
just sort of backing up maybe 30 years, I have to stop and think if that's about right. Even wow. a little bit further, um, before I started teaching at the university, I was a senior executive at Washington Mutual Bank, which we all oh, remember, remember failed. And JP yeah. Morgan Chase bought it. Um, that's when I founded my risk advisory firm. And that's when I was appointed as an affiliate instructor at the university. But before I went to banking, which I never thought I would be in, I owned a hardware computer company for 15 years and I won a lot of awards. There weren't very many women who owned hardware companies with technical services as well. <clears throat> and before that, when I first came to Seattle, now I'm going back, this is 40 years. Um, yeah. I, my first job in Seattle was as the public affairs person for the King Tut exhibit at the Seattle Art Museum. I have a mixed really? background in, in the arts and humanities and uh, technology. So um, I've always more or less pursued what I was interested in, <laughs> which is frustrating to my husband since he's a tenured professor and you know, professors can't move around like we can in the private sector. Um, right. So uh, I did other things before that, but those are the main, that's that's quite a few years right there. I owned your own hardware company at the store. I don't know them. Yeah, we started, you know, in the 80s. That was something that my husband and I started together in our basement. It's one of those HP stories um, where PCs at that point did not have hard disks. So what we invented and sold, um, sort of the beginning of the company, was a hard disk subsystem. It had a controller, a power supply, and a hard drive that was 10 megabytes or 15 megabytes to begin with. It had a cable, a strap cable, um, and uh, the intellectual property was all in the adapter itself that went into the computer. Um, so that you could be be working in your office, you want to go home, you just unplug the thing, it had a handle on the top, you carry it home and plug it into your other PC. So you're saving everything to a hard disk, which doesn't sound very unusual at all now. But that was that was a while ago. And then I moved from that into building uh, custom built PCs and file servers and into offering advanced, more advanced technical services. First, just plain networking and then wide area networking after that. And then uh, some really specialized kinds of things as well. I had companies that range from uh, Harborview Medical Center or Trauma Center here in Seattle uh, to um, Boeing. So we did wow. we a subcontractor to Boeing uh, commercial. And then we did work some spec work on the military side as well to begin with. Again, assembling um, computers to spec, to security specs, taking some things out, putting other things in. So I really like um, solving problems and that's a prime example of how that happens. Wow, so, so how did, what was your first, um, entree into University of Washington. Uh, I mean, what was your first teaching gig there? 
my first, you know, I'm real. I, I realize now when I advise other people how unusual it was. I had been, um, I represented Washington Mutual in gifts that we made uh, to a center for innovation that the iSchool had. It had mm -hmm. a fall and a spring conference, and we gave small grants to researchers as well. So that was my first introduction to the iSchool. And then when I left uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, two faculty members came after me and said, have you ever thought of teaching? And I really had never thought about teaching. I mean, I sort of had always had interns in jobs, various kinds of jobs, and was teaching in that sense. And I'd been a guest lecturer in classrooms. But then I was allowed to create two courses, one of which you always appeared in, risk course, operational risk courses for the graduate program. And uh, that had to work through all these committees at the university to be approved. Um, but that's what I taught to begin with. And then um, after I'd been teaching for a while, and I was just teaching one course a quarter. After mm -hmm. I'd done that for a while, I got asked if I'd be interested in teaching the ethics and policy and law and information use course. And I, that, was, that was one where I had a lot of flexibility about how I could decide what books they'd read, what philosophers we'd study. Would we look at intellectual property? What else did we look at that was relevant in terms of policy for information and technology? So um, I never was the person who was sort of hired off the street to teach ABC 101. I oh, never had to teach a course that someone else designed. I always got to either create it or customize it myself. And that's not always the case. Sure. Then in, then in uh, 2014, the dean urged me to apply for a full-time, what they called the competitive hire. Um, mm -hmm. And I did, and I got hired. And so I started full-time in 2015. Wow. When you, when you first started teaching, I mean, did you take to it like fish and water? I mean, was it just, was it just big so natural to you? You know, the you thing is... Right away? Yeah. You should try it, Mike. You'd be you'd, you'd be great at it. Um, the thing is, you don't I, that I didn't know for sure was, did I have enough content for each class? That's what you can't mm -hmm. know until you really start to teach and you get the rhythm of things. Um, so I might have them read things, and I'd have a lecture about it, and I try and encourage them to discuss it. And it was easier because we were talking about disasters or breakdowns that were relatively newsworthy and not too much in the past. Right. So I think that was the hook that got them. And that's, that's what I figured out pretty fast, that you can teach theory or you can teach a framework in which to understand mm -hmm. things. Really, the best way to do that is to have current examples of failures or losses or um, or triumphs when that turns out to be the case. And then, and then, sorry, what was it? 2009 or what? That time frame, is that when you started your, your consulting uh, firm? It is. Okay. And uh, so tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, 
when I I was, you know, I was kept on at JP Morgan Chase to transition over three enterprise level risk programs that I built. Um, so yeah. I stayed for six months after the bank was sold to JP Morgan Chase. And yeah. I had a lot of time to think in it during that point, you know, what do you want to do next? And, you know, I was kind of exploring, maybe I want to take a position in uh, a government agency. So I actually went through the process of applying to work in President Obama's administration. And oh, wow. I had okay. to go through something not unlike uh, security clearance, a low, lower level security clearance. But, you know, I had to say every country I'd ever been in, what the dates were, I had to give relatives. I think it's a pretty standard form. That was one. Um, I was thinking I might go to work for another bank. I kind of got offers on that. And I decided I was really pretty burned out. And then I was just stymied. So I um, I bought a 30-day rail pass on Amtrak. And I and uh, sleeper in the sleeper cars where I needed them, and I went down the coast, and I only went to see people who have known me for many years. And I said to each, I kind of interviewed them and said, "What do you think I should do? You know me really well. What do you think would suit at this point?" Because right. I'd had a lot of different kinds of experiences already. Went down the the west coast to Los Angeles, met with a good friend and guy who'd been at Washington Mutual running infrastructure for a long time. Took the train then over to Santa Fe um, and attended a weekend workshop. It was the first time it's ever offered. It's very, pretty famous now It's called Reboot Your Life. So it's for people thinking of taking a sabbatical or people thinking of retiring. And it's just like trying to get your head around what adjustments would you have to make? to do that. Um, then I went on to Austin, Texas, where I had old friends, Chapel Hill, where I had a good colleague up the East Coast to my sister in Princeton for a few days, then over to Pittsburgh to spend a few days with my son and came home. And by the time I came home, I was pretty, I pretty much worked it out with people talking that I was going to design a website that would involve my writing and speaking and uh, I really had defined the fact that it would be better at this point in my career to be a consultant to the executive team rather than be an, a full-time hire inside. That was, seemed too limiting to me. And I'd had enough kinds of experiences that I thought I could be helpful. So that's kind of how I got to that. It was really oh, great. Was... And on those days, there was only wireless on a train when you hit the train station. So right. I had a journal, I had my computer, um, and that's it. You know, it was great. Yeah, that's pretty good. You interviewed all your friends and found out, you know, got their input and feedback, huh? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Stakeholders. <laughs> yeah. I like Another that. kind of stakeholder. <laughs> so... Going back to the topic of, of leadership. So obviously your bread and butter, operational risk, you said you you managed that at uh, JP Morgan, you built you know, uh, risk management programs. From a leadership perspective, what are some of the things that get entities, enterprises in trouble when it comes to 
and enterprise risk program, operational risk. What are the, what are the things that they're not doing well that, that gets them in trouble? Well, the first would be, and you know this just as well as I do, not listening. Yeah. Not having so many things on their plate that it becomes one among maybe 12 issues they deal with in a day. And so it, and it sounds familiar. The problem might mm -hmm. sound familiar, particularly in the security area. Um, really, we don't have good people trained with a lot of field experience in operational risk, even today. It's a pretty new yeah. field, 2000 maybe, 2001. Um, so I think, you know, what I was trying to do teaching at the university was train what I call the next generation of risk managers, really to be able to um, assess things, to be able to speak English rather than acronyms or technical terms, um, and to be able to rather quickly assess the level of risk that was involved in any given kind of event. And most of all, to um, exercise what I think everybody calls critical thinking. That's what the Wall Street Journal poll every year says that executives say, say they want more of out of college graduates, that they don't get that, they want critical thinking. Which means they have to be told when they're wrong or they have to, when there's a hole in the argument um, and they have to be uh, helped through that. Um, I'm hoping we're gonna come up to that point pretty soon. I've spent a fair amount of time uh, working on public-private partnerships all the time I've, you know, been around. When I was at Washington Mutual, I worked with the Treasury Department to form a coalition of financial services and banks uh, called Washington First, and we did um, scenario tests together. Um, we worked on understanding uh, how many possible, say, for us, this was the issue, how many vendors are they who deliver cash, couriers? Are we all using the same vendor? Or is it? are there enough vendors that that wouldn't be an issue if an earthquake happens? Mm -hmm. you know, who got it? What kind of support do they get? Um, so that was the first public-private partnership uh, that I was involved in creating. But the bank loaned me to a lot of projects as well with the government with Treasury Critical Infrastructure Protection, with FEMA, and uh, with part of DHS, which now is evolved to be CISA. And uh -huh. to this day, even though I've retired from teaching, I'm still a member of the Region 10 Infrastructure Security Group, and I'll remain a member and you know try to urge people whenever I can that it's really important for the private sector to take advantage of now what are pretty robust offerings uh, from the federal government in terms of sharing of knowledge. Um, you know, who knows? Target might still have the same hole if the FBI hadn't stepped in and told them they had a problem. Right. So, so I think, you know, th that's something that's really important to me. And in talking about that, I've totally forgotten what your question was. Oh, yeah, no, it was just... Just talking about, you know, what are the things that are lacking from leadership standpoint oh. uh, on, on, on when, you, when, you, when you assess an enterprise risk program for, for some enterprise or entity? 
Well, the, the next place to look, I think, is at the relationship between the CEO and the board itself um, and how diverse the board is and how much expertise is, you know, is the board structured in such a way that they have an appropriate number of people who understand risk, whether they're a risk executive somewhere or not, it's not really the point. They could be something else as well. But all too often, um, we saw this in Seattle with Washington Mutual, the CEO was the president of the board of directors as well. And he more or less ran the nominating committee for new directors. So mm -hmm. I'm not saying it was friends and family necessarily, but it wasn't but, the most robust selection of qualified people. And if that, and the board rather gullibly simply just went along with what was proposed every time. And if that yeah. board had been different, then we wonder if Washington Mutual would still be around. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can't have a group think and then hope to have a good enterprise risk program. That's right. This doesn't work. That's right. Yeah. Um, maybe off topic a little bit, but you know the, the recent events in Maui, Lahaina, you must have been thinking about this. I mean, Horrifying. How, what are some of your expertise? How, how do you, how have you dissected it so far? It's just, um, I think it's going to stand much like Katrina did years ago um, as uh, just an a prime example of warnings years ago about certain kinds of problems, whether it was power um, mm -hmm. or other problems. Um, and an inability to be anything but sort of uh, putting it off, not worrying that something will happen. And uh, the tragedy really is like New Orleans, though most of the core of New Orleans, the part we call the historic district, it really was protected, I think. Certainly the wards were not protected, which were also historic. In Hawaii, that that was the home of Hawaiian kings, the city that mm -hmm. the town that burned. And how do we get to a point where you have a you tell me, Mike, because they would have been reporting to you, right? The guy would have been reporting. How do you get uh, an emergency director saying, well, we didn't hit the sirens because we were afraid they'd go the wrong way? Yeah, they were hit um, to the fire? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, and people are just terrified. I mean, the film is just awful. I don't know um, how they're going to rebuild that. And I think you know, there were complaints about the government, but I think FEMA was on the ground and they certainly helped with personal assistance as well as, you know, um, food and shelter and mm -hmm. those those issues. Um, but it's a really long prospect to recreate that town. Yeah. I think it's it just really hard to, to think about it and what, um, whether people will stay or not is another matter you know that was the case people went to texas i mean that's where the government sent them right during katrina yeah. uh, so i just um i think we need to and i'm 
I'll bet you're in agreement. We need to really re review protocols um, for advanced handling of things and what we do with severe possible risks when um, we understand them, even though nothing has happened yet. We've seen that with power companies failing in other parts of the United States as well, because you know they go bankrupt out of the lawsuits that in, that come from that. And we we all saw the pictures of the wires hitting the ground and sparking. And so that's something they've been warned about over and over. That's something the power company had been warned about. And um, friends of mine who are more conservative than I am. Um, are saying, well, you know, if they hadn't put all that damn money they were given into uh, clean energy, uh, if they'd actually done the work they needed to do to cut back brush and do other things, this wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. And there certainly is an argument to be made for that. So I think there's a kind of grand reckoning that needs to happen for disaster management when it's natural disasters. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's amazing to me when, you know, you have the... Uh... The Maui emergency director who suddenly quit because of health issues after the painful press conference. And you find out, you unpack all of it and find out he had no emergency management experience at all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I guarantee you they probably didn't run scenarios, you know, all the exercises, the things to prepare, right? Probably. I not. think they've just, you know, I, you know, one, I'm working on a, long document on digital trust and I'm gonna to try to deal with the public private thing, but you know, we did a scenario test every month at Washington Mutual and it was different every time. And often it involved two events happening at the same time. I like, I really like those to see how people behave. But um, I think we really need to broaden, we, we did, a couple of those tests would involve SPD, the CL police department or fire they'd be at the table in the situation room. Um, mm -hmm. But I think we need uh, a kind of broader kind of scenario test among different kinds of organizations when something hits a region. So a regional regional test, you know, that don't take two years to write and execute. Right. Um, so that's another one of my hobby horses now. <laughs> <laughs> something you said earlier was, Interesting to me. So there's there's a, a narrative out there about the current generation of students in college. Um, how you know whatever phrase you want to use, but that they don't they're they're too soft and they don't uh, they don't necessarily have those critical thinking skills you need in the real world. Uh, what's what's your take on that? What's been your experience? Maybe it's different because it's grad school. I don't know. But, well, uh, no, and I teach both undergraduates and graduates. So okay. the undergraduate, I think, first of all, that uh, pandemic took a terrible toll on students. Some of these kids coming to school as freshmen now have mm -hmm. never been on a campus or in a classroom. They've been online to get their education, pretty much, wow. mostly. Um, hmm. I would say most of the students that I taught throughout, not just during the pandemic, are working and going to school, the undergraduates. There's nobody just sort of paid for by their parents and they're a member of a fraternity. I think that model has been 
changed somewhat by economic circumstances. I think they're really hardworking and um, it's hard. I was just talking to my son, who's also a professor. He's got mm -hmm. a new group of students. He started, he teaches at SUNY Albany. They've started mm -hmm. on the semester system. And he's got one class that's full of kids from New York City who are freshmen. And he said, you know, it's just hard to start because there's so many things having to do with how you behave. It's okay to speak up in class. Introduce yourself to the person sitting next to you. They have none of these protocols. We could blame some of it on the pandemic or part of it perhaps because of what their background is. We don't know, but he's doing a lot more than teaching the subject matter in that class. He's modeling for them the behavior he wants from them. So oh, I don't think they're soft. I think they're inexperienced and, uh, and I think they're anxious. I, really anxious the last couple of years about how it's going and what it's supposed to look like. And they're watching all these people be laid off at large companies now and wondering if there are going to be jobs for them. And they're wondering if AI is going to take jobs away from them. All right. Um, so I've, I have a lot of confidence in them at the same time. And on the graduate level, I'd gotten to the point where I was still teaching the ethics and policy class, but I was teaching it only to mid-career students. So these are people who come back to school to get the degree. And mm -hmm. in some cases, companies like Microsoft or Boeing might pay the tuition for them to do that, you know, it's to advance their careers. Those people are anxious also, I would say, mostly because if you're in an ethics and policy class and you're looking at emerging trends, you see machine learning before you see AI, and you're worried again about, is there a place for an information leader, which is what I'm supposed I to be training, heard. right? Or is I that heard. going to be superseded by a new model? Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, uh, I'm glad to see uh, these narratives are always swirling around there, but nine times out of 10, they're not true. Well, it's just changing. And it's it's good to hear from someone like you that's been in the trenches, still are in the trenches, and and really understands who the students are that are coming up, and what are the things that they're up against uh, that hopefully uh, they'll be prepared for when they get out, right? You know, I I I just when I first started publishing research notes, they were only from graduate students. And then in 2015, when I started teaching undergraduates as well, when I went full time. Um, I would publish a few, but I would say the last couple of years, most of the research notes that I publish, and they're all on pretty current events tied into frameworks, are written by undergraduates. And that's good for their resume too, to show that they've actually published yeah. work. Um, so I, I keep in touch with a lot of them. Do you? Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I see people like, uh, you know, remember you used to be in Samantha all the time, right? Yep. And, you know, we see her now. She's, she's, she, she got her master's at, at, at UW. We, we helped sponsor that at Microsoft, but now she's like moved on to her, you know, a, a different level in the company. So it's That's kind great. Of great to see that, that evolution. Um, and, uh, you know, so yeah, there's always, to me, it's always hopeful. Uh, next, next generation will be able to, 
to do what they have to do, right? To keep that's right. Train running, right? That's really true. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, what's next on the horizon for you? Well, I got advice from a risk detective was my first book, and that's a general public book. I've got to make a fourth edition because the section in particular on technology is outmoded, and I think the whole thing could be um, could be updated. That looks at personal risk at home, at school, at work, on the road. What the hell is the other one? Sorry. Um, there's one more, one more in there. Um, and it's, it's a book where I'm talking, but I'm doing storytelling a lot of it on myself. Um, and there are no acronyms in the book. That's what I pride myself That's on good. there. Uh, but I've got to do a, a new edition of that. Um, okay. And then I'm just looking. I just, uh, I haven't read Full Circle yet, but, you know, I'm an avid suspense novel thriller, um, suspense, dark, you know. Uh, yeah. Just all kinds. So so I'm looking forward to that. Um, I, I, I just wouldn't be able to do it, Mike. I just, uh, you know, I, I read so much, you think. If you read them yeah. a lot, you should be able to do them. But see, you have all that lived experience in the CIA police department before Microsoft. Um, and I'm sure you make use of it. Yeah, I do. I do. It's it's fun to concoct stories, but they have there has to be a basis of realism. That's right. In those stories. But uh yeah, I mean some of the happiest moments, you know, uh is just sitting here thinking about and just putting it on paper and telling a story. Uh, and um, I, hope, I hope I hope you enjoy it, read it. Uh, I got the second one coming up soon, so I'm almost done with that. Uh -oh. I'm go. here. I got you back. I think you froze for a sec. Um, I guess uh, I, I guess last last question is, um, when when you look at the the, the topic of, of leadership what are the two or three critical traits that, that you consider in, in in your journey that you find in 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 great leadership so integrity is number one mm -hmm. um being an active listener uh is number two, so that you can hear people both above you and below you, um, mm -hmm. and right. and and pay attention to what they're saying, and then um, a quality that I think Colin Colin Powell wrote about a lot: authenticity. Mm -hmm. It's not the same as integrity, but that um, the person you're speaking to or people you're speaking to can see that what you're saying is the best that could possibly be said, the best that you know at all times. I love your term selfless leadership because that's what that is. That means that the issue is always more important than the person. Right. And that's right. a hard lesson for a lot of potential leaders to learn. They're busy yes. making their career work um, rather than paying attention to what the issue is. Exactly. Uh, and you know, part of that is natural because you want to grow your career. But when you become a leader, 
It's a whole different hat now. You that's know, you right. Took yourself out of the equation. Now it's that's about right. your team, your troops, and and that's the that's probably the hardest switch. You you know that yeah that's it's the hardest switch. Oh, that's my doggy in the background. <laughs> uh, well, you know, thanks for taking the time out of your day to to hang out because and I've been looking forward to this. I haven't seen you in person in a long time. I know. So just just being able to talk. And, and hang out it's been it's been it's been really great and uh great uh if if people wanted to get a hold of you you know maybe avail themselves of your services how do they do that annie at anniecerl.com okay do you want me to spell it sure a-n-n-i-e last name searle s-e-a-r-l-e dot com awesome awesome thank you well, thank you for the and, opportunity and, uh, you're welcome, and I'm looking forward to uh, I'm looking forward to your podcast. Uh, you mentioned you're going to do your own podcast maybe towards the end of the year. So uh, just stay tuned, and and once 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 you launch it, let me know, and we'll make sure we give a shout out for it. So great, thank you, Mike. People, people subscribe. So okay, all right. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, well, that's all we have today for uh, this edition of the Ronan Leadership Podcast. I want to thank Annie Searle again for uh, for just hanging out with me. I think it's been great. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, again, uh, check out our podcast on YouTube and hit the like and subscribe button. And until next time, we'll see you later. You hit the